You're listening to Drek FM. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. Episode 100. Very special. I'm so glad you're here. We're only going to be able to talk like this because it's the Dark Knight Podcast. Guys, I'm I'm so excited. Before anything, we made it to episode 100. Looks like we made it. 100. Fantastic. And I am so happy to be a part of it. The century mark. I I I feel great. Um, it's weird because we're way past 100. We're like at 121 with this episode because of all the supplementals. But it just feels special that you know the actual episode 100 is going to be you two and talking about. I, I I mean, let's just spoil it right up front. One of the best movies of the 21st century, and I would say still in the ranking for best comic book movie. Of all time, agreed. Still, so. still in the rank, still in the ranking. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I have, I have, a, I have one that I would put above it, but that's just me. Uh, yeah, I'm I know. Okay, we'll yeah, get to that later, sir. But it's yes. probably more like it's it's probably more like tied. And and uh, I'll just put it right out there. Uh, this is not my favorite movie of this series. So, but it's still just such an incredible movie that I have to say it's still probably. I mean, it's it's not it's undeniable that it, it's either one or two or three in the best of the comic book movies ever made. It just, I mean, there's there's no denying that. That's true. I concur. 
<laughs> uh, exactly. And I, John, I would be remiss if I did not say that. <laughs> I'm so, yes. <laughs> so much remission going on. I'm I know. Just, it's I all know. over the place. Like, Everybody's remiss about things. Oh, gosh. Well, we've just started off this 100th episode because it is going to be uh, three friends who are talking about a movie that they all love. And re- we are really going to dig into this movie. Well, we're just going to get the, the ball rolling in just a second. Um, but of course, I do need to remind everybody that the 602 Club is part of the Trek FM network. And you can find all of those shows at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. And, and Tristan, while they're at iTunes, uh, any you know thoughts about what they should do while they're there? Well, I think what they should do is they should go find 602 on iTunes and give you guys a five-star review. Well, actually, you know, any kind of review. We prefer five-star reviews, but, you know, any kind of review is good. Yeah, whatever you think that we deserve, I'm okay with that. So uh, I really do appreciate that right now we have a perfect five-star rating, and that means so much to me that uh, anybody who's taken out the time to go do those reviews has given us that. That's amazing. Thank you so much. I encourage you, as Tristan said, to go do that because it does continue to help the show grow. Yes, we may have hit 100, but we could also continue to reach more people, and your reviews really do make the difference in who finds the 602 Club. Of course, you can find Trek FM on Facebook at facebook.com slash Trek FM. You can also find us on Twitter at Trek FM. We're on the Babel Conference, which is our listeners-only discussion group there on Facebook, a great place to have a conversation. Just type Babel into the search field there on Facebook, and you'll find us. And, of course, I, I love getting emails from people. I really appreciate everybody who's emailed recently. It's been a lot of fun to get them. You can find that at trek.fm slash contact. Just choose the 602 Club there in the drop-down menu, and that'll come straight to me. And last but not least, one of my favorite things ever is to get voicemails. Go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm, and you can send a voicemail. And I love that when those come in. So uh, yeah, send me a voicemail of your three favorite comic book movies, and we will make sure to play them on the show. Uh, and so, yeah, send me those. I'd love to have that. It'd be a great way to celebrate this 100th uh, anniversary here, this this 100th episode anniversary for the 602 Club, as John said, hitting the century mark. Now, the Dark Knight just starts. I mean, there's we're, so we're going to do the same thing, and uh, the opening of this film, you can tell that the stakes have been raised. They are raising the stakes with this movie, and Gotham itself is having the stakes raised, and clearly, you guys, it, it's because Batman's on the scene. And there is a, a, a real sense of escalation in every sense of the word when it comes to what's happening in Gotham and especially what continues to happen in Gotham throughout this movie. So I wanted to start there with you guys and just kind of ask you about that idea of, you know, Batman comes on the scene Gordon even asked them about this, you know, we get Kevlar, they get armored piercing rounds, you know, this whole idea has already been building in, in the series, and it really seems to have hit its stride, especially here just at the beginning with this incredibly tense opening. Yeah, this opening is one of my favorite openings out of any movie. Uh, this is uh, this ranks right up there with such a, a strong hook like J.J.'s first Star Trek film. Uh, this... I remember that opening shot, even though it's just of a building, just it's it's so impressive because we get the we get the bat symbol in the smoke and then the fire, and that goes past us and it's eerily quiet. 
And I, I saw this in IMAX. The first time I saw this was in IMAX. And so the sound was perfect. And then all of a sudden it just cuts, boom. And it fills the IMAX frame. And it's Gotham. And Gotham looks very different. And it you can right away, you can tell this is going to be a very different movie. And the music is different. And it's got that right at the beginning. And it just builds the tension from the first frame. Yeah, I you know the the opening I I saw it in IMAX uh, for the first time as well, and uh, you know everything you said, Tristan, it, it, right down to you know just a little. There's a very little percussive boom when the first shot comes up, and I re- I'll never forget seeing it in IMAX. And when that first shot, you know when it when it resolves from the you know the the bat symbol coming out in the flames, and that first shot opened, you heard the entire audience gasp, just go <gasps> like that, like it was just, you were immediately in there. Uh, mm-hmm. The opening, I would actually say, is very evocative um, of the opening of Heat, uh, <laughs> that first heist that they pull. And it, very similar. Like, it starts with a very slow shot in the beginning and everything. Now, Heat is, you know, it's not structured exactly the same. But it's that same sort of thing where it throws you in and you're like, what's going on? Everybody's coming together. There are all of these, um, you know, they're planning a heist and... You know, they're talking like and you're sort of like in the middle of it and you don't really know what's going on. But then everything I mean, I, I think that if you're going to talk about the beginning raising the stakes, it's Nolan's declaration that he's not going to uh, slow down for anybody with this. Like the beginning of Batman Begins, if you look at the first film in the series, it starts with, you know, kids playing in a, you know, in a garden, which, is you know, and before it goes into the more uh, shocking scene in the prison and everything like that, this raises the stakes in the sense that he says, I'm not going to treat you gently. You're going to have to jump in and you're going to have to go along with me. And I, you know, I think it's, it's a huge payoff. I, I think that in terms of establishing mood, um, the, the opening of the dark Knight is uh, it's a masterclass in how to do that with a film. Well, and two, one of the things that I notice, uh, as you said, Tristan, when you open up on Gotham and th- everything looks very different, I I notice that the film palette is monochromatic, like it's very stark. Mm-hmm. There, there's it's it's very clean. Gotham is very clean now, uh, and and yes, it doesn't look anything like it did in the first movie, and that still pisses me the hell off. Uh, that it, it doesn't look like that Gotham, but it, it has a very specific look in this film, and that look says something because there's just a hardness, I think, almost to the way that Gotham looks. Like, I don't know if I'm I'm explaining it well, but the the, the starkness of the contrast, like it's dark, it's light, it's there's there's not a lot of color in this movie. It, it's it's a lot of black and whites, and I think that's a really interesting thing to watch throughout this this movie. I'd actually, I think I'd tend to disagree with that one. Um, yeah, because it, here here's the thing. Here here's here's one way to take it is that if you look at the like, what do we get before each opening scene? We get a new and inventive way of seeing the bat symbol. Now, each one of those bat symbols is a distinct color. Now, in Batman Begins, you have very like a rust, deep orange kind of earth tone feel. And if you think about the color palette of Batman Begins, that is the that's the same color palette. You have the opening of the Dark Knight. It's very, very dark. But at the same time, it has a lot of blue 
And I feel like the yeah. Dark Knight itself has a very minority report kind of blue tinge to it. And then when you go to the Dark Knight Rises, the opening is ice, so it's white and black. And then if you look at Gotham, i.e. Pittsburgh, uh, <laughs> it's it's very it's it takes place in winter time, and it's very it's that is where you get your stark contrast. That is well, I mean, you get stark contrast in Dark Knight, but that is where you get your whites and your blacks is in the Dark Knight Rises. And this one, I'm I'm seeing that opening it too. I think really says it. It's that cold fire look. You yeah. know, uh, yeah. That that's the that's the feeling you get, and 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 so that leads me to that kind of monochromatic feel that I'm I'm seeing throughout the movie. Again, there. I mean, even even just taking into account the the new um, bat layer, it's like minimalist Batman. Like there's there's nothing. It's stark. It's it's there's no frills about mm-hmm. anything in this movie. It has all been stripped away. And I think that's one of the things this movie immediately does is it sets you on the stage of saying, this is, as we talked about last time, this is really Batman for real. Yeah. Like, there's there's no there's no comic bookiness till the, till the very, very end. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, everything else feels very, very, like, almost any kind of crime drama, like you were saying, John, like Heat or The Godfather, any of those kind of films, like, that's kind of what this movie feels like. Throughout most of it, yeah, but but with the the bat layer that we get, I mean it it's it's so beautifully done um, because it I, like the 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 layer that Batman is in, so to speak, where he spends his time uh, as Batman, like it, it it changes with each film as well, and it's a callback. They don't at any point like really say like, oh, by the way, remember, everything's burning down. I mean, you get the intro scene where, you know, Alfred says, you know, when you go back to not sleeping, you know, in a mansion as opposed to not sleeping in a penthouse, I'm going to be a lot happier. Like that, you know, that's the one callback that you get. But I think that what really this bat layer is evocative of is if you look at all of, there, there is a, I, I don't know how to phrase this carefully enough because there is an emotion to Batman but it's a much more controlled environment. It's not the gothic cave with the bats and everything like that. This is this is a there's bat- no giant penny. There's no, no but I mean, you but know. I mean, there's there, there's no <laughs> like th- this looks like a crime lab. This is Batman at the top of his game. This is mm-hmm. you know the, utilitarian. The, the, yeah, the the tide has turned. His tools are tools. Like he's not going for style points for. You know, I'm gonna bring Vicky Vale back to the cave, and you know, you're Vicky almost gonna Vail. you're almost Vicky gonna walk Vail. off the cliff and die when you when I first bring you to the lair and that sort of thing. Like this is, this is just you know, this is my base of operations. There's nothing emotional about what I'm doing with this place. This is where I do my my detective work, and it it looks like a crime lab. It looks like a a police precinct in a sense, a one man police precinct. And I think it's like I I think it speaks more to the idea that Batman is in control in a lot of ways. He's turned the tide. This is not the Gotham of the first movie where corruption and insanity are are running free. This is Batman's Gotham. He's he's exerted his control over the city. And I, I think that's what the the color palette and the Bat Lair are reflective of. Batman is the Rudy Giuliani of Gotham at this point. Like he has cleaned up the city that nobody thought yeah, he could clean no, up. I, essentially, yeah. That was <laughs> that the, was he, my rationale for how why Gotham looks so different is because because Bats cleaned it up. But John, I really like what you said about 
um about it looking like a crime lab and like this is this, he uses his tools he's not going for style and i think that this movie arguably is the best detective batman that we've seen um before and since i i would say that the one in dark knight rises doesn't get to uh to stretch his legs quite as much after the first act but so yeah i i mean i th- i think i would well, agree it's with cuz he can't move his legs so well, you know you know he, he's yeah he's got a limp <laughs> No, I, I would say that in terms of the entire uh, film, yeah, this is the most detective Batman uh, that we've gotten. I agree. I'd say that this one, and, and I think Batman v Superman does a great job of, of Batman being able to be a detective. Uh, the movie plays with that a lot. Um, and so, uh, I mean, he does a lot of detective work in that movie. Um, so, uh, but no, I agree. This is This is great to see him working the case and working Gotham. And uh, like you said, John, he definitely is at the top of his game. And and that's where we're coming into this movie. And that is what leads me to that question about this idea of escalation, you know, because uh, is Batman in any way responsible in some ways for the rise of chaos because of his presence, causing the mob to escalate and to trust a complete psychopath because they can't find a way around Batman. In fact, not only is is Batman in charge, but now the law itself is being able to reinsert it, itself with you know Harvey Dent. It, it raises a really interesting question in the movie, and um, I don't I don't know if there's necessarily a one for one answer, but I think it, the idea of escalation here is really fascinating. I agree that the the issue is raised. I think that. Uh, definitively, I think that the same person that that raises it, Alfred, you know, you spit in their face. And, they, you know, so they turn to a guy that they didn't know how, you know, whether to, you know, how they could. Po- they, they basically reach out to a resource that they couldn't control. Things get out of hand. The Joker is his own, you know, force of nature. He just wants to watch the world burn. The mob didn't realize this when they went out to him. That doesn't make it Batman's fault. And uh, Alfred says that as well later when. The Joker is kidnapping people and torturing them and saying, you know, show your face or I'm going to kill a person a day. Alfred's the one that says you can't give in. You can't do that. You can't let him, you know, dictate what's going to happen. So personally, I think that one of the greatest things about Christopher Nolan is he never tells you anything about what, you know, he wants you to think of a scene or a theme. He just says, you know what? what you think of it is great and i'm i'm happy with that and i applaud that because i i see the movie as definitively saying the mob made a bad choice they should have really just packed up and just accepted defeat and instead they unleashed hell uh in a desperate attempt to regain authority i always took it as i, I agree with what you what what you're saying about alfred on on both sides but I always took it as Alfred saying it. It is your fault, but that's okay. Like when when he said, like his line is, "You cross the line first, sir. You squeeze them. You hammer them to the point of desperation. And in their desperation, they turn to a man they didn't fully understand. And I feel like that's him saying, "Well, yeah. Didn't you think that there was going to be reprisals later on?" He says that he's like, he's like, we always knew this was going to get worse before we get better. He's like, this is Batman's fault. But then later on, like you said, when he um, doesn't turn himself in, that's when Alfred explains it to someone who doesn't understand it. He explains it to Rachel where he goes, he's like, yeah, he's being better 
you know, he's being what Gotham needs. He's not being a hero. And, you know, like, yeah, he's causing this, but it's a, it's a just cause and it's something that needed to happen in order to clean the streets. It had to get worse before it got better. What's what's really interesting to me, too, is that when this movie comes out, I, I see a lot of parallels with what's kind of happening in the world at that time with the Middle East. And, you know, we, we went into the Middle East, we escalated the situation, uh, and things got worse before they ever got better. And the the people there began to turn to people that they didn't fully understand or couldn't control. And... We're the ones who got out. Batman backed away. I think that's really interesting because this film, it does have its place in history. But I think beyond that, like you were saying, John, it's not a one for one. And I don't think that's necessarily, I think more like Tolkien is what Nolan is going for. Something that's more overarching and you can put on a lot of different situations and see things in. But you know, to me, this this kind of had a lot of those nine eleven ish type parallels. Because I mean, even Batman standing in front of the burned out building that Rachel used to be in uh, looks a lot like the destruction of the World Trade Center with the way that everything is framed and everything, and Batman standing behind the you know in front of the fire and all. So it just it, it almost feels like Batman's facing. Uh, his own kind of personal 9-11 in this movie. And and how is he going to respond to that? How how do you respond to that? And to me, I think that was something that's fascinating, especially, you know, since this movie came out after, you know, us living that for a while. Yeah, I see, for me, the contemporary theme that it really hits on uh, with relation to, um, you know, different... I mean, the beheading videos were happening, so obviously the Joker's videos are very evocative of that. Um, but in terms of the question becomes with all of the surveillance that Batman does with the application of new technologies, yeah. with the seeing no limit to what he is willing to do in order to stop the threat. I think that is the much more contemporary. I think that was very much something that resonated with audiences across the board where it, it does basically what good science fiction is supposed to do, which is it takes a situation nobody wants to talk about in the real world, puts it in a fictional world, and says, how do you feel about it now? Because when you're sitting there and he makes a point that Batman keeps escalating the tools at his disposal and the question keeps coming back of, how far is too far for you to respond in terms of how how much you're listening, how much you're reaching in, you know, and then, of course, climaxing with Fox at the end, you know, looking around and saying, this is wrong. And so long as this is here, I'm not. And, you know, like, and you see that, that, and then Batman's response is just this one time. We just got to use it this one time, and I'm giving the power to the one person I know doesn't want it. And, you know, like, it, it's it's such a fascinating thing. Like, every time I come back to this film, it really reminds me of those conversations that were going on at that time and how uncomfortable it got sometimes to discuss this film because you would inevitably start talking about that aspect of it. I It's really interesting that both of you guys have brought that up because it I'm playing the Telltale version of Batman on uh, on Xbox right now. And it's a it's a really fascinating game where it's uh, 
you know, like y- you decide what Batman and Bruce Wayne says and you decide what he's going to do. It's a story based game. And one thing that they introduced that no other uh, visual iteration has done is drones. Batman uses drones like crazy. He has a fleet wow. of drones that searches the city trying to find certain people. And it's funny because when the Dark Knight came out, we were all worried about, you know, like NSA surveillance on its own people using cell phones. And then now yeah. we're we're killing innocents in the in the Middle East with drones and we're also surveilling people with drones. And then Batman in this new video game is using drones at, for his own purposes and for his own law enforcement. And so yeah. this is just a, a like every five years, every 10 years, we're getting a new version of how Batman is u- utilizing technology. And like in 89, I mean, the rise of uh, of cable news and the rise of of, of uh, I don't know, like a, I, I, CNN, like, yeah, like things those. like that you know, like the Joker used TV to intimidate, you know, he, he created a commercial, you know, and, uh, and yeah, <laughs> it's just really interesting to see that catalog as we, as we go through time. Well, and as we're talking about this, it really comes back to that whole idea of rules versus no rules in something that Alfred says to Bruce, he says, you can make the Batman can make the, the choice that no one else can the right choice. And I think that's, what's really interesting here because what is right and what is easy and what is lawful aren't always all the same thing. And I think that's one of the things that I found what was really fascinating to, to, to hear Alfred say is you can make the right choice, the choice that nobody else can. And, and to me, that is, it's just a great conversation as we're kind of talking through all these different things that Batman's using and what it was alluding to and what it made us think of. And to me, it just came down like, what Alfred said, which, you know, making the right choice. Yeah, but see, I, for me, especially because, you know, he says, what would you have me do, Alfred? Endure. Take it. They'll hate you for it. And it's it, like that conversation I always take more as getting back again to Nolan's admiration for what Donner did with, you know, Superman, you know, make them look up to you. And basically Batman has become that symbol. And if Batman chooses to endure, if Batman chooses not to bend, if Batman shows that it sucks, but I'm going to ride this out because it's the right thing to do and I can't bend, then, you know, they, you know, they will hate you for it because you're reminding them, you're reminding the people that that it's, it does stink, but you can't stop because, you know, when he goes to that press conference to turn himself in, when Harvey Dent says, I'm Batman, People are calling for Batman to be, you know, thrown on the fire. And it's Harvey Dent that says, you know what? You were perfectly fine with him to clean up your mess so long as you weren't suffering in some way. But now that you're suffering a little bit, you're ready to just throw him away. And that's not right. And that's why Dent, you know, does the heroic thing and says, take me, blame me for everything. Like, I I just think that that's a really, in terms of endurance, it's an interesting perspective that the film has. Well, that flows into one of those themes that plays throughout the movie, which is is really the Joker's main thrust, which is to try and prove that everybody basically is just like him. Like, in the end, everybody will do whatever it takes to survive, you know, and, and it doesn't it doesn't matter in the end because we're really all the same. 
there's there's no actual good people. And it's an interesting argument because um, I think the answer that they kind of come up with is is a very humanist answer. Uh, that there there's some intrinsic good in all of us, and when we all pushed comes the shove, we would choose the right thing. I don't think that's really true, but I like it in this movie. It it makes me feel good. It it, it does. I mean, I, I'm glad you said that because one of the things I come back to consistently with the end of this movie, with you know the prisoner's dilemma and everything like that, is you know you have the fairy of the good people and you have the fairy of the bad people. And one has to decide whether to blow the other up. And, you know, neither one does. Everybody trusts that everything's going to be okay. The thing that I come back to is on the ferry with the good people, they're, they're like parents with kids, right? I can, if I was alone on the ferry and it's like all adults and everything, I'd be like, guys, you know, it's the wrong thing to do. Come on. But if my kid's sitting next to me, you're not stopping me from blowing up the other boat. Like that's, you know, like it's so, it's so, I, I can honestly say that I would fail that test if my kid was with me because I'd be like, look, this is not the right thing to do, but uh, yeah, I want you to live another 20 to 50 years. So boom, you know, there goes the other boat. Am I on an island about that? Am I alone in believing that? <sighs> that is uh... uh, Tristan soon to be dad. What do you say? Well, that that is a hard question. I I don't want to I don't want to sound self righteous, um, but I, from a very young age, uh, I was taught that my life meant nothing if it meant to be used in service of others, and um, and I I felt I was taught that um, those who chose to sacrifice themselves for the good of others and for the good of uh, one's own people or one's own country, uh should be glorified and this sounds very much like a zealot but uh i'm trying to go down a non-zealous uh area here but i would like because i'm not a father yet i cannot answer that and i don't want to presume to answer that but as an individual i would not want to if it was my life against many i would hope that i would choose to sacrifice my own life yeah, no, I, I agree with you. If it's just me sitting on that boat, yeah. But like, even if it was me and the girl, though, um, if it was I, if it was me and my wife, me and Agent Bun, yep, yeah. we're both going up in flames. But you put one of my kids on that boat, I don't think like that anymore. Yeah, I can't. I can't answer that question yet. Like, ask me in February. Okay, I will. I do think that that what's what's interesting here, and we'll just lay our cards on the table. We have three gentlemen here who come from a Judeo-Christian background, mm-hmm. so therefore our moral compass comes from the idea of, you know, that he who lays down his life for another is, is somebody that, like you said, Tristan, is somebody that should be looked up to. Mm-hmm. Uh, that 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 is basically a godly way to live. Uh, that you that you would lay down your life for another. Because uh, greater love has no man than this or woman. I will. Uh, I'll. I'll throw. I'll throw it around, and I will say that in that moment where I made the bad decision to blow up the other boat to spare my child, I'd be throwing my own soul away for the sake of my kid. And you know, hey, so you know, put sort of a a good spin on it, right? Well, well, that was a theme that was also you know played out in Hamlet, where you know he the uh, the brother of Ophelia says, "I dare damnation." By, Laertes. you know, like, thank you, Laertes, you know, like he, he said, he's like, I dare damnation by seeking his revenge. And 
he knew that he was risking his own soul, but to him it was worth it in the in that right. moment. Well, and 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 that's I think the thing that uh, okay. So laying our cards on the table in uh, uh, where we are, I think that when you put it in a world that's kind of stripped of that type of morality, the the question that they're raising makes it kind of difficult to answer it the way that the movie does because I don't think that anybody has a reason to to live that way in a world that's 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 not based on that kind of moral compass anymore and and we just don't live in that world anymore so i love the answer because it's pointing in a direction that reminds me of where that i i believe that morality comes from but i don't when i watch this movie I don't think it's an intellectually honest answer for this world to say that that's the choice that people I think would make because I I don't think that we live in that world anymore. Yeah, but but I mean the thing is that I guess the point of any hero tale is to show us how we should be living as opposed to right, how we right, we exactly. are living. And I and I'll say with this ending in terms of like where it points and and you know where it makes its decision and its declaration like it makes two different declarations because of course you have the the two-face arc that posits the same thing on a more personal level rather than the grand scale so it asks the same question twice basically um but this was this is one of the handful of you know big event you know comic book type of movies where it wa- I I wasn't walking out laughing like oh I was so entertained and I wasn't walking out saying oh that made me think I was walking out I felt so positive yeah. about life and about people coming out of this film that like I, I remember walking out and flipping my cell phone uh, open and uh, yeah it was it was a, a Motorola razor so it was a flip phone but flipping it open and calling my brother immediately because he's also a big comic book and Batman fan and I called him like the minute I walked out of the theater and I said you have to see this like tonight or tomorrow you have to get out and he's like oh I got a job and everything I'm like, no you have to go see this right now and like I walked out and I was like everybody's got to go see this movie because you walk out of this film feeling so, so good about, you know, the, the idea that people could make the right choice, that people could maybe look at an example and say, yeah, that's the way I want to live. I agree with what you guys are saying, like, because I felt that same way, you know, coming out like I, I was I was jazzed and I was like, yeah, people could be good. And I, I'm sensing some doubt from you guys, but I I think I, I was able to believe this premise a little bit more than you guys, because I loved how they framed it because I I loved their wording choice. This was a very specific wording choice because if you like, if you listen to what Joker says, he says, you won't kill me out of some misplaced sense of self-righteousness and I won't kill you because you're too much fun. I think you and I are destined to do this forever. He says, you'll be in a padded cell said, maybe we can share one, you know, they'll doubling up the rate that this city's inhabitants are losing their minds. And then bats replies with this, this city, Oh, excuse me. This city just showed you that's full of people ready to believe in good. That's the thing right there. Ready to believe in good. Now, it's not saying that's a city full of people who are doing good. It's not a city full of people who are good. It's a city full of people who are ready to believe in good. And then the Joker counteracts that with saying, until their spirit is broken. And I think that is spot on. No, I, I and I really like that. And and I, I'm going to make an interesting argument here that this movie is is the Empire Strikes Back of this series. 
because it ends on somewhat of a positive note, but it also ends on a sour note because the movie ends with the wrong person being lifted up as the hero and everything being then built on a foundation of lies. So to me, I come out of this movie and every time I see it, I'm like, this is going to be bad the moment everybody learns the truth. I, because wow. once the truth comes out, it's going to be awful. And so to me, the the, the theme of the movie and, and, and really just the end of Batman saying, you know, sometimes the truth isn't gov- good enough. Sometimes people deserve more. Sometimes people deserve to have their faith rewarded. But the question becomes, what is that faith in? And so they put their faith in a false savior, which was Harvey Dent. And the moment that false savior is, is, is exposed, instead of putting their faith in the one person they should have, which is Batman, it's, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's the whole dichotomy of, of uh, putting up false idols. And this movie sets up a false idol that once it's knocked down will almost destroy Gotham completely. Well, I mean, I, I think that it's tough to um, analyze everything about this film without bringing you know what dark knight rises posits which is you know what you know what what you're alluding to here that like you know that they don't give the truth its day right but at the same time like the whole hopeful aspect that remains for me about this of course is the fact that batman does step into that that judeo-christian savior role and absolves harvey dent and says you know what? He messed up, but it's, uh, you know, I, I, we forgive him. And that's right. He literally takes on his sins. Yeah. I mean, but <laughs> yes, he let's does not beat around the bush. He, he does. But the thing is, in terms of like the lifting up Harvey Dent as a symbol, like him being lifted as a symbol doesn't really, I mean, to me, it didn't really happen until they established that they had, you know, in Dark Knight Rises that they had passed the Harvey Dent Act and cleaned up everything based on a lie and all of this stuff. Whereas with this, I view Dent, if I view just the Dark Knight itself on its own, when I walked out, I viewed it as making a statement, again, because Tristan, what you said, the Joker says, until their spirit is broken. And what what is being said at the end of this is people can be broken, people can make bad decisions, but you can still forgive them for it. And you you can judge somebody for, you know, more than just their mistakes, and like that, that's really what I walk away with at the end of this film about Harvey Dent is we're not going to break everything because one person was pushed beyond their, their limits of endurance. We're going to, we're going to remember, you know, like it's the whole thing. Don't speak ill of the dead. That that's well, you and know, an old adage. I, I think that that's really interesting though, because it goes back to this kind of, idea of trust like the whole movie is 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 also talking about this idea of who can you trust you know and dent does not trust people in gordon's department because they're people that he investigated and he thinks are rotten gordon does trust them uh and it's almost as like though at the end of the movie they don't trust the people of gotham to be able to make that that distinction what you're saying john that yet yeah, harvey dent wasn't perfect but he still did a lot of good and be able to put that in perspective. So they they concoct a lie to build everything on. And again, the, the movie itself, without the Dark Knight Rises, still builds an, an entire framework of saying, 
Harvey Dent's the hero, Batman's the villain, and that's how we leave the movie. And yes, it's it's kind of hopeful for for what Batman's willing to do, but it's also not not trusting the public enough to be able to deal with the truth and 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 and, and like protecting people from the truth. Like, but you can't protect people because from the truth because it always comes out in the moment that it does, and people realize they've been lied to. It doesn't end. Well. I, but see, I'm 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 baffled because I I, I don't know. You're, you're the first person I've encountered that said they walked out of Dark Knight thinking in those terms. Because, hey, I'm just a revolutionary. I I, I guess I guess no. I, I'm just saying He's ahead like, of the curve. What? Yeah, it, I, I'm just saying like in terms of of Dark Knight as its own contained work, I don't see it as building up Harvey Dent based on a lie. I see the ending as. Uh, you know, eulogizing him and, it, and, and you know, and, and the forgiveness angle and everything like that. But but to roll it back to what you're talking about, how um, you have uh, Dent, you know, Dent's the idealist. Dent doesn't trust anybody in Gordon's department because he investigated them all. Uh, and you have the more pragmatic Gordon saying, and his exact, I, I'm going to, I don't know if this is his exact line, but he says, you know, if I, if I didn't work with people that your department has investigated, I'd have nobody to work with. So, you know, Gordon is the one saying, this is what I have. I don't have any other choices. These are the best people I've got. And, you know, I, I don't have any other choice about, you know, whether Harvey Two-Face investigated these people. Um, so, you know, you have the idealist versus the pragmatist, really, I, th I think, going with that. But... I mean, I don't see, I don't see that at all. I, at the end of this, I see very much that, you know, Batman, Batman says we can't let the Joker win, and that, you know, and that ties into the whole, you know, right. Absolving but Dent. they can't let the Joker win, and they think that the only way to not let the Joker win is to continue to perpetuate the lie. That Harvey Dent was so you a, you white, actually in two thousand oh, no, no hold on yeah is 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 to perpetuate the lie that Harvey Dent is the White Knight that never fell off the horse instead of allowing people to know the truth and to be able to keep the true hero that they the city still needs which is Batman so again to me like it ends on a very bittersweet note. And it, I, I've always thought that, that this movie has a bittersweet ending because it, even if they'd never made another one, and I'm just really sensitive to this idea, and I, I look for it in film a lot, but the idea of of putting your faith in a lie, what do you put your faith in, and is it strong enough to hold it? What they're asking Gotham to put their faith in is a lie. And the moment, again, it comes out, it's not going to be good, and and that always struck me as something that's going to be really interesting. Uh, John, yeah, where where's your disconnect there? Because I mean, that's the, to me that was always a very clear setup at the end where they're raising up uh, Harvey, and they're so mm -hmm. that Batman can take the fall because someone has to be to blame. So where's the disconnect with with you with what Rushing is saying? I don't see it as raising up like I when I viewed the Dark Knight back in two thousand eight. I didn't look at it and say, oh, well, they've raised up Dent and they're going to change the whole city based on acts and laws based on, you know, Harvey Dent or anything like that. I considered the Dent arc done where at the end of it, 
Like the, it, they're not going to come back to the, they're burying Dent. I come to bury Dent, not to praise him. And so Gordon is coming up there. And during that eulogy at the end, the way that it plays, and I, I never saw this in any other way when I looked at Dark Knight alone before Dark Knight Rises came along, that they were basically saying the Dent thing is done. We're going to bury him. We're not going to drag him through the mud. We're going to let him lie. We're going to, again, not speak ill of the dead. And I didn't see that as, you know, the the thing where they were saying that they were going to reshape the city based on things they were going to do in his name. Well, no, like that. I don't think that that's. That, I don't think that's what Russia. Rush, I can't speak for you, but I, I definitely didn't think that. I, I wasn't, I wasn't uh, like jumping five steps ahead, thinking that they were gonna um, reshape the city or do a dent act. You know, there's no way that we could have gotten that. But when I think when we say build him up, it means build him up to where he once was before he started his downfall, when he was Gotham's White Knight. And I think like if you go back to that conversation between Joker and Batman. Joker says, I took Gotham's white knight and brought him down to our level. And then you have at the end of the movie where Bat says, people have deserved their faith to be rewarded and their faith in the white knight. Okay, see, uh, th- this, this is where, this is the analogous film that, that I'll point to, is that this ending is a lot like the man who shot Liberty Valance. This is the <laughs> West, we print the legend. Oh, yeah. No, and, you're and right. So so do you come out of the man who shot Liberty Valance and you say, well, the West is built on a lie and everybody's going to turn against uh, Jimmy Stewart now and everything's. No, it's people saying, you know what? Sometimes the you know, they're saying in the context of this story, let that story go. Let's just let it lie. It, the past is the past and we're going to move forward from here. I right. You know, and, and, and I can I can completely understand what you're saying. But I think the difference here is the context of finality. Yeah, the the seeing um, the the you know this is so tied into the world in which we've lived in the twenty first century, and the idea of the way lies when they finally come out, they just explode, uh, and and they they can ruin people, they can ruin reputations, they can ruin countries, they can. I mean, so this whole idea to me. When I did see it, I, I again I saw it very much as the with the way Tristan and I've been explaining it, just that they have exchanged the truth for a lie, and they've built the themselves. Uh, it's again, it's very biblical the idea that they've exchanged the truth for a lie, and the moment that you exchange the truth for a lie, n- nothing is going to go well here because the lie is is that again, I mean Harvey Dent is not a hero hero he's just a a normal guy he he did some good things he did some bad things you know and um i understand what what bruce is saying when he says you know people deserve to have their faith rewarded but rewarding it by perpetuating a lie putting hope giving hope to people based on a lie the moment the lie comes out the hope is gone and even in a worse way than before. So I'm the only one. See, I, I remain focused on Batman's arc because it's, you know, it's Batman's right. story. And so I, I suppose, you know, to put it in context again, like they say, you know, Dent's dead. We're not going to drag him through the mud. We're going to let him, we're going to let people remember the good man as opposed to like Dent really died in that warehouse. He, you know, it's like, uh, it's like the whole Darth Vader thing. 
Anakin died on Mustafar, and he's Darth Vader after that. So we, you know, we're going to remember Anakin and blah, blah, and he's going to become his, you know, he's going to become Hayden Christensen at the end of Return of the Jedi again. And when you're going forward, right, like my focus in this arc is that Batman, again, the hero's tale is that, you know, it doesn't matter whether you get the credit for doing the right thing. It doesn't matter whether people recognize that you're the hero. You do the right thing, even if people aren't going to give you the credit for it. Even if people are going to think ill of you, you still do the right thing. Right, which is a part of the story. But I think, and this is an interesting question, because, you know, Batman is only a part of this story. Batman isn't the main focus of the story. All of these different aspects, I think, of The Dark Knight uh, are a part of the story, whether it's the Joker, the Harvey Dent story, uh, Batman... Everyone is playing their part, so I don't really. I I guess I've never watched the the Dark Knight and really even the Dark Knight Rises as being as much about Batman as it is a story about Batman and Gotham and everybody in Gotham. Like after Batman Begins, this became much bigger to me, especially seeing this movie. Uh, and so I, yeah, I, I think we just come down to the thing. I, I wasn't just focusing on Batman alone. I was focusing on the entire story. Oh, okay, yeah. I, I mean, I, film, I know that so. that there are other parts of the story. I'm saying though that the ending is about Batman providing the hero's <laughs> example. Yes, right? if you if you take the if you take the very ending, yes, the like the, the final shot is Bats going off and him saying the Dark Knight. Like you know, like John, you're you're absolutely right. But you know, rushing, I think I think you're right as well about how how much focus is put on Dent. And John, to go back to your example about who shot Liberty Valance, I mean, to get a little out of universe, um, so because like you could focus in universe, and if like if this was the last movie, then I think that would resonate a whole lot more. But with when you're having like a, a think when you're thinking about Batman and Chris Nolan and WB and DC, like when we were watching Liberty Valance, we weren't thinking, oh man, I can't wait till the sequel. You know, like that that movie was very much a final movie. That was a final that was a final tale. Now with Dark Knight, we all knew that this story wasn't finished. I like at the end of the Dark Knight, I didn't walk out thinking about what the next one was going to be. So far as I was concerned, if it ended there, I would have been perfectly happy. And I, I would have been perfectly satisfied with the film. And I think yeah, I mean, it's almost it. It's it's almost like um, how the the conversation we had about Batman Begins kept we kept making reference to the Dark Knight, and it's like so. I, I get what you're saying about how the entire you know trilogy of everything colors your perceptions about what what's coming back and forth. I'm talking about the moment in time when I came out of it in 2008. The several times I saw it, it you know it, it all coalesces because even though you know there are different elements of the story, and it's you know, if you really, you know, if you really want to go to the Judeo-Christian road, you know, Dent is Job and, uh, you know, the Joker is the devil and Batman is God and, you know, and all of these things going on. Um, but even when Batman's not in the movie, it's about the effect Batman has on everything. It, it's related through yeah. Batman, but, you know. Oh, no, I completely and utterly agree. I but it is just definitely the way that I have always thought about the film. And I, I think that, for the most part, John, I, I'm probably sure, and, and when we talk about this on the Babel Conference with people, my guess is that most people would think just the way you did. Like, And I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. Like, I'm not 
saying that you're wrong either. Uh, for me, I'm just saying that I kind of see this as a more melancholy end than um, just the hopeful note that you really came out on. Um, and I think that's awesome. It's just, it's a different place to be for me. And and then I guess it it did, it obvi- honestly, it did get compounded because come out with The Dark Knight Rises and, you know, that, that just solidifies where they're going to take the story and, and what they do with it. Um, and, and, yeah, we'll save that conversation for there. Uh, but I think it, it just made for a great conversation here. So one more, because we've just been running through these themes, I think it's great. We'll just keep going. One more that really struck me was the idea of fairness, the way the world works, and personal responsibility. You know, because Two-Face, something awful happens to him and something snaps in Harvey Dent. And he says, it's not about what I want, it's about what's fair. As if life's fair. It's like he never heard the saying, life's not fair. Uh, You thought we could be decent men in an indecent time, but you were wrong. The world is cruel and the only morality in a cruel world is chance. Unbiased, unprejudiced, and fair. And it's what I love is the Batman's response is, but what happened to Rachel wasn't chance. We decided to act. We three. And Batman takes the road of personal responsibility. And Two-Face takes the road of, well, it's just not fair. And so I'm going to turn into a whiny millennial about it and oh, go to my safe space. <laughs> Cut the guy some um, on. Cut the guy some slack. Like half his face got burned off. <laughs> I'd be a little cranky true, too. But I mean, and also uh, but you I, have a millennial with you. Come on now. Come on. but i don't i I think that's so fascinating that batman comes to this idea like he lost somebody that's important to him too just as important as as she was to harvey and yes his face isn't burned off but he is able to see that he is responsible for his actions and those actions led to this result uh and i Two-Face can't make that jump because it's just, it. I think it's the mental breakdown. Um, you know, he, he definitely has a psychotic breakdown. Uh, so, but I just, I think that that question of, you know, the way the world works and personal responsibility is life fair, all that stuff, it's a nice little microcosm between those two characters in that conversation. Yeah, I, you know, I mean, Dent, it, you know, represents the person at that moment who, you know, has lost faith. And, you know, it, it's everybody has a breaking point sort of thing, um, I guess. You know, I, I mean, if we're if we're going to bring in, you know, what, you know, what effects they're going to be, you know, Batman gets broken by this, too. He just gets broken. You know, we don't find out how broken until uh, until Dark Knight Rises. It's interesting, uh, you know, because Batman is defending, you know, saying, no, 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 this is this is the way life is. And. Uh, you know, Dent, I think, just represents that person that, um, you know, just gets gets pushed too far. I mean, everybody can be. I think what we're getting here is very much a killing joke joker where, you know, that we have that theme of everyone is just one bad day away from madness. And Joker, like where the Joker in the killing joke failed in that experiment with Gordon in the Dark Knight, the jo- Joker succeeded with Harvey with Two-Face and I I love that like you know that I love how smart and crazy the Joker is because he targeted exactly what would hurt him the most and and I just I just love that moment between Batman and Two-Face towards the end of the movie 
when you know like like you you referenced the beginning of it like it's like we decided to act we three and uh, like two-face says the joker chose me and then that's when batman breaks down himself and says that's because you were the best of us he wanted to prove that even someone as good as you could fall and fall he did and i think that's a very interesting take from in the comic books to in the movies where nolan was not scared to push it push the killing joke even farther well i think that's one of the things that i i mean i'm when you think about the way that uh, they make these comic book movies these days and you take uh, an amalgamation of so many different comics and when you find just the right alchemy between different storylines and bring them all together, I mean, I think you're exactly right, Tristan. The long Halloween and, yes. you know, the killing joke are put together here and you come up with just something incredibly special that I, I think works so well. And I think also it's the reason that we can spend almost an hour talking about just thematically how incredible this movie is. And, and we could keep talking thematically about how awesome this movie is. But then, John, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about some other things. I mean, like, we can't be remiss, I, I, because We can't be remiss. No, uh, I, and I, I do. I want to keep talking about this stuff. But I want to ask you guys, and, and Tristan, you gave us a great segue about talking about the Joker and the way he compares to the killing joke. I don't know what we could add to what's already been said about Heath Ledger's Joker, but I do think that it is one of those once-in-a-lifetime type performances from an actor that completely and utterly defines the genre in a way that I feel like Christopher Reeve did for Superman. And mm. everybody has to live up to Chris Reeve now. Everybody has to live up to Heath Ledger. Or yeah. try to find a way to reinvent it somehow so that you don't want to compare the two. Yeah. No, I, I completely agree. Ledger, uh, you know, was a terrific talent. And I, I do think that Joker is a masterwork of acting. Um, because there's not a moment watching this film, even today, where I think, oh, that's Heath Ledger. Y you know, even when he has the makeup off and he looks more like Heath Ledger there, I don't sit there and say, oh, that's Heath Ledger playing so-and-so. There are plenty of actors where you can watch them and you're like, oh, well, you know, that's so-and-so. You know, like you never truly believe who they are. And I think that what, I think that the way that, um, Ledger ups the game isn't just with the interpretation of the character, but with the fact that he was so immersive that there was never a moment you doubted that you were watching the Joker. Oh, yeah. Something that Jared Leto was desperately grasping for and could not attain. And it got so nauseous. I, I got so nauseous from constantly hearing about it because Heath Ledger was so impactful on the genre and defined what it meant to be Joker, not 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 just a bad guy, but but Joker himself. You know, like Jared Jared Leto's thought that he needed to take it even further, but he forgot the reasonings. It wasn't the craziness. It wasn't the over the topness. It wasn't let's let's see how crazy I can act publicly to get marketing campaign. Heath Fletcher locked himself in a hotel room for weeks on end, just wrote journals to be introspective within joker's psyche and leto basically just said like oh the joker's crazy i'm just gonna do crazy things and that's the two difference i like and don't get me wrong 
I, I, I like that Joker. I, I like that Joker in Suicide Squad, but it's a very different portrayal. He, thankfully, he ended up in an okay place, but he tried to tackle it the same way, but in very different ways. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not really making sense, but I think you guys understand what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I get, I get what you're saying. Yeah. No, uh, I, I, I dig it. Uh, I think, um, yeah, I cannot add anything to what you guys said. I just, it's just a fantastic performance, and 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 really. I think it is so interesting that the villain truly does overshadow everything else in the movie, even Batman. I mean, to me, when I watch this movie, it is Heath Ledger's movie. It is the Joker's film. Uh, Everything that he's doing is incredible. Well, let's, let's ask you the inevitable question. Do people enjoy this movie? Would they have enjoyed it as much if it wasn't Ledger? If it wasn't this performance, do people walk out of Dark Knight as impacted i think that heath ledger's joker is the difference between a fantastic movie and a movie that is truly sublime ledger that that's fair yeah i i think ledger takes it to that upper echelon something that no one nobody thought ledger legitimized this genre there would be obviously there would be no oscar nomination no oscar win if it wasn't for ledger but Ledger himself legitimized this genre. He like he put it into the the public's consciousness as art. Because if you look at if you look at superhero films, you have like at least of of recent times of that time, you have X Men and maybe Blade, you know, like and um, yeah. you know had like you just got Iron Man, and it's all it's all popcorn, you know, like it it you know like when you go to the Oscars, like unless you're you're gay and have makeup on and you know like your entire family died you're 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 not going to be considered for an oscar and and so like why on earth would they look at a movie about a guy who wears a cape and flies around and beats up people ledger's performance made people realize oh this can be perceived as art this can be treated as art well and i think that uh, you know my wife turned to me while we were watching the movie and she's like and and she she knows the conversations that uh, people have online, uh, even though she doesn't get into them. But this movie isn't very funny. <laughs> Why isn't this movie funny? I'm not laughing at this movie. And and she was making fun of the idea. But I think what she was pointing out, and I think it's really smart, is that on top of Ledger's performance, Nolan takes this so seriously. Mm-hmm. And again, what we talked about for the first hour of this podcast had nothing to do with anything comic booky. It was about deep intellectual themes that take this super serious. Are there a few chuckles in the movie? It was a, yeah, sure. It was a but big that, dog. Yeah. The, yeah. the magic uh, trick was but, hysterical in my book. Yeah, oh my gosh, you know, that uh, won me. Yeah, that, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make this pencil <laughs> disappear. Um, I was one of those weird so, people yeah. that literally clapped when that happened. Oh, I was, I was yeah, defaulting no, in the movie I, theater. I, yeah, I thought I that was everybody just great. Did. But but I think that's the thing. It's like there there's a there's a way in which the the seriousness of the film plus Heath Ledger's performance just elevate it to the next level, and it's it's hard to it's hard to top that. But I what I like personally for me, and this this is this is just for me. Nolan's films were the ones that taught me that I could take superheroes seriously and they became the superhero movies to which I wanted more of that 
So for me, when I got Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, that kind of stuff, that fit within the wheelhouse that Nolan set up that I liked. That's not everybody, but I like it. And and so for me, it's it's just I appreciate that Nolan really set the stage in this film even more so than what he did with Batman Begins. I think this one just set that stage firmly, and I've loved it ever since. And I think you're right, John and Tristan. Heath Ledger's performance, the seriousness with which Nolan takes the subject matter that just bring this to, Tristan, you said sublime. I'm going to stay with that. Agree. Real quickly, John, I know you love yourself some Maggie Gyllenhaal. Ah, yes. Yes, I and, do. And uh, so I know that you love her as Rachel in this film. I do. Uh, Tristan, did you did you like the new choice for, for Rachel? Uh, did, did she work for you? Or? Answer carefully, Mr. Riddell. I just don't like the character. I I don't like the character. Shame on you. I feel like it could have been better. Um, I don't think Nolan casts women very well, which is odd. Well, I I'll, I'll argue completely oppositely the next film. That's <laughs> um, neither here there. And yeah, so I just I don't know. Like I, Katie Holmes is Katie Holmes in every single movie, and I don't know. There was just and so I. It's hard for me not to say that it wasn't an improvement to give you a double negative, but at the same, because I, Maggie Gyllenhaal is by far a better actress than Katie Holmes, but I felt like the lines that she were she was given in the movie just made me roll my eyes and how she delivered them. I was just like, oh my god, really? We're going we're going this way? Uh, no, I'm just gonna say I just disagree, but okay. That's cool, man. You know, you know like this is this is not a hill that I'm gonna die on. No, me either. No, I and I. I think I just agree with you, Tristan. I, I don't think that the role was written well. Mm-hmm. I don't think the roles for women in the film are written well until we get to the, the third one. That's that We'll talk about that later. I want to ask you guys about a couple more things, but we got some amazing new bat toys in this movie. Can, can we just talk about how cool the bat pod is? I mean, I, I, that is like the... Uh, and the way that it moves. Did your uh, just, did your theater oh lose it like mine did when it went up the wall, turned around, and yes. went back yes. down? Yes, yes, yes. I still the, the, lose it the when that happens. Theater erupted in applause. Yeah, like my, just straight up applause. My theater had a dead quiet for just a couple of seconds so that they could register what just happened, and then it was oh oh. <laughs> and and if you notice the, the, I think that they understood what they had because there is an extra beat after that moment where I think that they, they saw it happen and everybody on set probably realized, yeah, this let's give everybody a second to breathe after this one. Cause they're, they're really going to love it. And this started the trend of flipping things vertically, like flipping oh, yeah. things forward. Like after this movie, everybody's just like, Oh, well I guess we got to flip forwards now. Uh, yeah. Even uh, what Terminator Genesis, they yep. were like, we're going to re up it. And the bus is going to do yes. three somersaults. <laughs> Ah, <laughs> uh, God. Yeah. What what makes the bat pod so cool, I think, is just the fact that it's real. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, it's a real thing that somebody rides. Now, it doesn't do all the tricks, Yeah, obviously, but it's still something that's real, and you know that there's one person in the world who can ride that thing and can do cool stuff with it. And I, I think that that's just really special. But it also felt so Batman. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it whoever designed this thing, it felt 
like something that came straight out of the comics. And even yeah. though we'd never seen any bat cycle like this before, ever. You know what I'm saying, Tristan? Yeah, it's that's the thing is that we've never seen anything like this. And it is so Batman, just like you're saying. But it makes me ask the question. You know, the Tumblr was designed by Fox and Co. And so was the bat pod in addition or were they given like all these uh, were they planning on giving these army guys who were going to be building bridges like oh they might need to escape in some motorcycle you know like what what happened there like was was that just batman tinkering after he got the tumbler or or what i i can honestly say that i've never thought about it enough to care really? because the moment yeah no because the, i i still remember seeing it for the first time in the movie theater and you know when it like it's got the countdown and it goes goodbye and he shoots out i was like i don't I, come on who cares you know what it's awesome that's what it is is that you know at some point little batman got down and he was about to go to sleep and he said lord i know you can hear me right now could you make it a magic motorcycle come out of my batmobile <laughs> and lord said for you batman i'll do it if that was the in-universe answer that would still be satisfactory <laughs> for me just so you know <laughs> good What's what's so funny about that is I'm thinking, you know, I, I feel like all the moments with the Bat Pod, the entire theater, it's just like a collective, oh, shh, yeah. moments. Yeah. Just like, because it's blowing your mind what it's doing, and I I love it. So, <laughs> the the um, girl, every single time we watch it, like when he goes through, like when he goes through the crowded mall, like that's actually yeah. a mall we go to. And every single time the girl goes, ooh, Cinnabon, we go to that Cinnabon. <laughs> That's really funny. And thank goodness they never did the marketing choice like they did with the 1989 Batman and like worked the footage in where he's like, I'm going to go grab a Diet Coke yeah. or anything like that. Let me pull out my bat car. Yeah. Didn't they actually get Alfred to do those commercials? Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Oh. And the less that's said about them, the better. Okay. All right. Moving on. Yeah. What did you guys uh, quickly just think about the new bat suit? Because this one is is uh, I think a a nice upgrade from the first movie. One and 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 I'll just say this: the suit fits him better. The suit agree fits. I'm sorry, the girl uh, just Christian texted Bale me a lot better. I'm sorry, the girl just texted me a correction. Um, she said it's Millennium Station, not a mall. Come on! So she was yelling at oh. me for calling it a mall. It's Millennium Station. I apologize to everyone. And obviously, I was way too loud. She's supposed to be sleeping right now. But uh, yes, so the, the the girl just texted in a correction. I'm sorry, rushing. I'm sorry. Please, please continue. You were talking about no. The that's suit. okay. The the girl can can text in. I'm still going to call wants. it. A we're going to get her on the show one day. Um, but uh, no, uh, the suit though. I, I what did what did you think, Tristan? I, I we've talked about the suit in Batman Begins, and we've talked about it during our '89 commentary on uh, the Nerd Party. I uh, I have a love-hate relationship with the suit. I, I like its realism. I, I like that everything has a purpose. I, I like that it looks tactical. It looks like something that, besides the helmet, you know, it looks like something a military man would wear in an advanced warfare scenario. I like that about it. But from a Batman standpoint, from a like from from a from a colossal comic book standpoint. I think Batman Begins is much cooler and much better for the world um, and for the camera. I, I, I love that, that suit so much, and I, I like that we got to see a little bit of it in The Dark Knight. So I get the progression. I get why they did it, and I think it was smart, but 
I still like every time I see it, it still looks like his head's just going to wobble off. And so I, I, I don't know. Two, two reasons I love it. One is it's the only time I can think of where they gave an actual explanation at any point why the, you know, for the upgrade in the Batsuit. Like from Batman to Batman Returns, it just changes. And then from Batman Returns to Batman, like I like the fact that they made it a plot point to say this is different. But I think it also ties into an earlier part of the conversation is, yes, I agree with you that it doesn't look like, you know, gothic monster Batman, you know, Mm -hmm. trying to scare criminals. But I think that speaks again to where he is as Batman, where his tools now are more utilitarian than they are, you know, uh, fear inducing or or anything like that. Like he, he doesn't have that trick in his bag anymore. Everybody's figured out it's Bat man and that he's got some sort of you know even though he's not wearing hockey pants you know so like it, you know because I'm, I'm not wearing hockey pants is, is, yeah. is it pants or pads because i've heard people it's, quote it's pads. pads it's pads but i always say pants because it sounds like he says pants <laughs> oh man i'm just glad we're not in in britain where pants are underwear so that, that's that's <laughs> i'm not wearing Bat hockey underwear, underwear. Um, <laughs> <laughs> i'm not wearing um, underwear at all I, Whoa, it's whoa, really, really sweaty for- in here. <laughs> this is an uncomfortable suit. It rides up. Does anybody have any talcum powder? No! Does he? Uh, does he? Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's created a paste. It's created a paste. <laughs> this was a bad move to ask this friend now? Is, it, is this Ross right trying now. to get on the bat suit? Oh my gosh. Um. So I, I like the suit from the neck down. Uh, I don't love the helmet look thing. It 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 doesn't look enough like the bat cowl. And uh, it, yeah, I don't think they fixed that till Batman v Superman, where it looks like the Batman suit that I love from the comics. But he can also move his head. They just found a way to make that work finally. So, uh, well, three points yeah. so far in this podcast where I disagree with you, gentlemen. <laughs> yes, but it doesn't yeah, have a okay. wire in the butt crack, so thus it is inferior. <laughs> <laughs> I do have to say, okay, the last like real new bat toy is the surveillance equipment. And uh, I wanted to ask you guys what you thought about this because for me, I realize that it's ridiculously comic booky, but it's the one thing in the movie that is ridiculously comic booky. And I kind of like that Nolan was okay with going there of just like giving a heightened realism to some technology. Because it made sense for Batman and it made sense for the story, I I really liked it. I thought it was cool. So if if they took away the visual element of the surveillance equipment of the surveillance technology, if it was just audio based, I I would be able to call this a perfect movie. I felt like once they introduced that technology and they made it hokey and they made it over the top, it it was so it was so convoluted it felt like too much plot and not enough story and it was to the point where like if they wanted to use it as an audio base that'd be great because then we wouldn't have to get those stupid bat eyes things where he actually sees it like a vr situation because there was that situation where like he's like oh like it started it started going out and he's and lucius is like oh i'm rebooting and he's like, oh, I'm blind, I'm blind. Well, just use your real eyes. God dang it. Just use your real eyes and you'll be fine. 
See, for me, that moment that you just referred to makes the whole thing worthwhile because I, you know, the very first time I saw it, but still every couple of times that I watch it, it it's such a jarring moment and I love it. It's Nolan playing with the audience when everything suddenly goes black. I remember the first time watching it, everybody sort of like sits up, what did... Like, did the film just break? What what just happened? What just happened? And I, I love it because it's Nolan messing with the audience. And I like that. And I, th- I think the whole thing is worth it just for that. It's, it's sort of like, uh, you know, when, when Mike Schindler says, you know, if I get uh, Mulder and Scully meet the wearer, the wearer person, you know, I'm willing to sit through the other five terrible episodes. I'm not saying that this is strictly analogous one to one, but it's worth it for that moment for me. I think it's a cool scene. Again, I just like it because it's comic booky, and it's the one thing in the movie that truly feels like something that just ripped right out of the comic books. That yeah, it's it's over the top and a little bit crazy, but that's kind of what comics do, you know. And uh, it's the one thing where it's like I think I feel like Nolan let let that uh, comic book geek flag fly. You know, he's not a huge comic book guy, but it. He, he just kind of let that one out, and I, I liked it. it. It just, I don't know, and you know. For I, that very reason is why I dislike it, because, like, yeah, I like comic book stuff too, but when you have a film that is so focused on realism and serious tone, when you introduce one thing that betrays the rest of the movie's tone... Uh... That feels like an outlier to me. I mean, like Batman, okay. like flying on his cape is, no, is not I'm, like. I'm I mean, glad. I'm glad you said tone because, like, if you're going to really start like hammering the, the scientific, you know, blah blah blah, all of that stuff, like, uh, I can't take credit for this joke, unfortunately, but um, how it should have ended, um, did, when they did Dark Knight, it was great because you know they they have Batman and Harvey. And, you know, Harvey's face is all, you know, all messed up. He's two-faced at this point. And he says, actually, I'm just trying to figure out how I can even understand you. I know, right? Like, with my half of my face missing, it's just all be like, <laughs> like, you know, if, if I'm going to make an allowance for somebody actually living through that, like, I mean, you know. That's, that's why I chose on. my words carefully. Tone. Betrayed yes. the tone. I know. I know. I tip my hat to you. Thank you. Can anybody answer me this one question before we get to our ratings? Why is Bruce Wayne talking like Batman to Lucius Fox when they know who each other is? So he's still talking like this, Uh, even though they're still talking about the thing that we've been arguing about for the last five minutes. I'll let let you go, Tristan. You give it a shot. Well, I'm I'm really interested to hear what you say, John, but I, I will go. He's wearing the suit. He is Batman in the comic books. It is and 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 I know you know this rushing, but like he is it is he is very much of two minds. He is Bruce Wayne and Batman. When he's talking to uh to Alfred over the comm, you know, in the comic books, you know, he'll say like he will say something like uh it's like uh like Ra's al Ghul is aware that Batman is Bruce Wayne. You know, he he won't say he find he found out that I'm Batman. He'll say Batman and Bruce Wayne. He'll he'll speak in the third person with both of his personalities. And so when he's in this movie and he's wearing the suit, whether this person knows who he is or not, he's going to maintain that persona. I I think that's a very interesting and valid take on it. The the take that I've always had with it is it's a callback in a sense to Batman Begins, where he's about to tell Lucius 
where he said, you know, he says to him, you know, hey, you know, in case you were wondering, and Lucius looks at him and says, you know, if you want to take this and do what you want, that's fine. He goes, but don't take me for an idiot. And like that scene, I, I think it's a callback to that scene where Fox is saying, so long as you don't specifically say wh- who you are right now in that suit, I have plausible deniability that you're Bruce Wayne. Where, you know, if you take that helmet off and you start talking to me with Bruce Wayne's voice, I, can, I can't go into a court of law and say, I don't know who's in that suit. Whereas if you keep that voice on, it's like a little wink and a nudge, you know, depends on what your definition of the word Batman is, you know, that, that sort of thing. I think that's reading too much into it, to be honest with you, John. Well, you know, color me reading too much into it then, Tristan. <laughs> I mean, cause... Uh, well, I mean, but that's okay because I read too much into it earlier, according to John, when I was reading, you know, oh, stop my it. reading of the end. And so, yeah, we've we've all been uh, reading it uh, too much. So this has been phenomenal. And this is a movie to which I think all three of us universally pretty much love. So we could continue to talk about it forever. But um, the 100th episode does have to come to an end. Uh, And because of that, I'm really interested to see how you guys rate what we have pretty much praised as being almost a perfect movie. In fact, I might even say the Mary Poppins of comic book movies practically perfect in every way. Uh, what do you think, Tristan? Uh, if this was on a five scale, I'd give it a five. If it's on a if it's on a ten scale, I give it a nine point five. And the point five is for the cell phone thing, um, because like I said, that's mm. how I truly feel. Like inside, in my heart, I if it wasn't for the cell phone thing at the very end, I would be able to say this is a perfect movie. And so when I tell people about this movie, I say I unabashedly love it. I think it's the best superhero film ever made, and it's a near-perfect film. That's how I would describe this movie. I think you're reading too much into the rating system, Tristan, personally. So, wow, really? Uh, really? I... <laughs> that, did, did, did you strain something with that reach? Because I, I hope you'll, you'll go ice that later. I'm going to have to go in for a hamstring massage tomorrow, actually. So, you know, it was a bit of a dive. <laughs> Couldn't help it. Uh, uh, <laughs> I, I, I'll just say this. I, I won't put it on uh, one of Mr. Riddell's vaunted rating scales. But what I will say is that uh, it used to be a fun thing in days of yore to have your desert island discs. And, you know, if you were stranded on a desert island and for some strange reason had a source of electricity <laughs> and an ability to watch a film. And I had to pick 10 films. Um, and I'm not allowed, you know, we'll, we'll get into the whole Star Wars discussion some other day. But um, like this would be one of my 10. This is this is one of my 10 hands down all time favorite films, period, end of sentence, like still evokes the same emotional and intellectual reaction from me every time I watch it that it did back in 2008. And I absolutely adore it. I I I just absolutely adore this film. And, um, you know, so there you go. Whatever rating you want to give that. As I started off the podcast, and, and I, I think everybody was thinking that this is where we're going to end up. We, we all love this movie. And I truly do think that it is one of the best comic book movies ever made. And the argument can be made, is it the best? So when you put this film up in that kind of echelon, it is a nigh-perfect film. 
Uh, there are a couple of quibbles I have about it. Uh, one of them is I still don't really like the character of Rachel, as we talked about. So that actually kind of knocks it down a little bit, just because I don't love that character in the characterization. But beyond that, luckily she's not in the film all that much. So this is this is like 4.5, 4.75 out of 5 bat pods. I mean, this is just... This is a phenomenal movie that, like you said, John, every time I watch it, it lives up, and I continue to rethink about all the themes that we were talking about and some themes that we just even get time to talk about because we didn't have time because we don't have time to talk about time because we just don't have the time. So uh, I'm so glad that... Um, I'm really glad that we reached the 100th episode of the 602 Club, and uh, it's meant a lot to me to, to do this show... And to be here with two people that I met because of podcasting and that I would say are two of the people that I respect most in my life today oh. because of this show. Um, it's pretty phenomenal. Oh, wow. Uh, Thanks, and, man. And, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, that so got me right in between it's emotional the bat armor right there. Yeah. Right there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Just, just like the knife. Right. Um, so the slow knife gets him every yeah. time, uh, and I, I really do, and I, tu I truly mean it. I, I, I want to say a special thanks to all of the listeners. Thank you so much for listening to the show and supporting it, talking about it, sharing it, reviewing it online. Uh, I just, I, I, a huge thanks to you because without you, uh, we wouldn't be anywhere. And it's so much fun to do this show for you guys, and I can't wait to. Um, continue next year. I've already been planning for next year. Things we're going to do. I'm so excited. Some great movies coming out next year we're going to talk about. Um, thinking about old stuff we can cover. All sorts of stuff. So um, you guys make this show possible. And uh, I got some other guys I have to thank through uh, Patreon. Our associate producers. Ken Tripp, Davis Grayson, and Norman Lau. Thank you guys so much uh, for believing in this show and supporting the network through Patreon because there's just no way we can run this network without you guys. So many different shows. It costs a lot to run this network, and it's because of listeners just like you that we can make sure that content like this and all throughout the network comes to you each and every week. So just go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and see how you can become part of the team and make that happen. It doesn't have to be a lot. Every little bit helps. So again, just go to patreon.com slash trekfm. Now, Tristan... It's been fantastic to be here with a person that I know to be such a huge Batman fan and a huge Nolan fan. Uh, I mean, you and the girl uh, even just covered how much you love Nolan on your, your podcast, Nerd Nuptial. But yeah, let everybody know where they can find you, where they can catch up with you and talk about everything and all of the amazing podcasts you do yourself. Well, uh, thank you very much. Yes, you can find me on Twitter at the Insane Robin, and you can also find me on this network on Trek.fm on I, our dedicated Star Trek Voyager show, To the Journey, which I host with Charlene Schmidt. You can also find me on the Nerd Party Network, located at thenerdparty.com, where we have uh, currently three shows, and uh, two of them I am on. Uh, one is called The Senate Floor, which. Uh, is a general geek podcast and a another one that you referenced just now is nerd nuptial which is a show that i host with my wife where we look at geek culture nerd culture through a married lens and uh everyone should check that one out and we also uh have a show that i'm not a part but uh you guys might have heard of before it's called aggressive negotiations which i think is one of the best star wars podcasts out there huh 
Huh. Aggressive negotiations. That's yeah. weird. Huh. John, did, have you heard of that yeah. one? Oh, Aggressive. Hey, we we co-host that, Matt. <laughs> Oh yeah, that's, that's right. the show we do. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, yeah. Sometimes I yeah. forget. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, a, aggressive negotiation. Oh gosh, <laughs> John, thank you for being here, my my brother. It's it's been a blast. Um, but uh, there are some things that you do beyond aggressive negotiations that everybody needs to know about. Oh, don't you know it, Matt? Uh, I'm here on Trek FM on Stage Nine with Mike Schindler, uh, the the podcast that's known for giving you cool and funny homework. Like uh, watching the Mr. Pibb episode of American Dad. I also co-host Words with Nerds with my pal Craig. uh, Exploring the the weirder aspects of fandom. And uh, you can find me. I'm Kessel Junkie. Look around. It's like, you know, if you say Kessel Junkie three times in the mirror, it's like turning on the bat signal. I'm going to try that tonight. (laughs) Please don't. I need a good night's rest. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you can find me. Whoa, whoa, whoa. This just got creepy. Uh, well, I guess we're moving into Shocktober as we're recording this. So uh, you can find me on Twitter at MattRushing02. You can also find me here on the network doing The Orb with Chris Jones, where we do talk about Deep Space Nine exclusively here. Uh, you can also find me doing Literatrecks with uh, Bruce and Dan as we talk about the books and the comics of Star Trek, interviewing the authors about their latest works as well. So much fun, so make sure you check that out. And, of course, uh, make sure that uh, you don't forget we have the Star Wars special feed of the 602 Club. So if you just love Star Wars a lot and you want to check out all the episodes we do on the 602 Club here, search for Star Wars, a 602 Club collection, and you will find all of those on iTunes. A great way to check out all the Star Wars episodes we do. And do not forget to check out Aggressive Negotiations on thenerdparty.com or, of course, on iTunes. Well, thank you so much for joining us for 100 episodes. And y'all come back now here. Yeah.